of me. And it's been a, uh, a, a bit of a review, I think, for a lot of us as we've been going through and looking at the, the different stories of people who've encountered Jesus following his resurrection. And uh, today we are actually doing something that I didn't set out intending to do, but after uh, I shared part of his story um, a couple of weeks ago, I couldn't really escape um, the fact that I felt like that encounter seemed incomplete. And so today we're actually going to kind of backtrack a little bit uh, to a story found in John chapter 21. It's a story of, of Peter's final encounter, at least in the book of John, with Jesus. And you might remember this story because it is one where, where Jesus and Peter, uh, Jesus had been resurrected and the, all of the disciples who remained with Jesus had met with him. Uh, but then uh, the disciples were out on a boat fishing and they, uh, and then suddenly they'd, they'd fished all night, hadn't caught anything, and they encountered Jesus, who told them to throw their net onto the other side. And then they found that the nets were full, and they realized at that moment that it was Jesus. Because there is this, this interesting rhythm um, of the stories of Jesus. And if, you, if that story sounds kind of familiar, you may remember that when Peter, particularly Peter, James, and John, were invited to follow Jesus, this is the very thing that happened at the very beginning. They encountered Jesus and had the same type of, of interaction. And the, the, whole, the whole thrust of that message was that Jesus is in the business of rewriting our story, that, that Peter, a, a man who had, who had struggled with a betrayal of his Savior, of his Master, of the man who he had spent countless hours with uh, for three years, spending practically every day with him, he had betrayed. But just as Jesus had given Peter and James and John a new story, when he called them the first time, Jesus still called Peter again. And we saw and kind of dissected his interactions with Jesus asking Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? One for every time that Peter denied knowing Jesus. Um, but the story didn't end there. And I think it's important that we continue through this story. Because there's a little thing that I think, uh, there's a little part of this, a, a question that gets asked that I think a lot of us will understand. And to be quite honest, I think a lot of us struggle with quite often. So in verse 18, if you want to turn to your Bibles there, this will be kind of where we primarily are. We're going to hit a couple of other verses um, beyond that. But I want to just give you the, in the invitation uh, to, to read what happens next. Um, in 17, it was the third time that Jesus had said, uh, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it says, Peter was hurt that Jesus asked this question the third time. He said, Lord, you know everything you know that I love you. And then Jesus said, then feed my sheep. So verse 18 picks up right from there. And then Jesus is continuing to speak. He says, I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself 
and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you do not want to go. Now, this is a a phrase that on its surface probably doesn't hit you as anything incredibly profound. This sounds like what happens to people when they grow older. People, when they grow older, even if you're not an old person yet, and I'm not going to define what that means, because that's for you to decide, and I would never say that you are old, but you've likely encountered somebody who has, as they have aged, has been limited in their mobility. And you might be reading this and thinking, yeah, you are going to get old, Peter, and as you get old, you're not going to want to go places like, well, for us today, how, how many of our, our loved ones have said that they would rather die than have you put them into an old age or a nursing home? I've, been enc- I've encountered so many times families that have had to wrestle with that because that's the last place that most of our loved ones ever want to go. And so we read this and think, you know, this, this might just be a statement on the future for Peter, but John makes sure that his future readers don't mistake what Jesus is saying here. This is not simply a statement of aging, of of what it means to grow old. Specifically, Jesus said this, this is in verse 19, Jesus said this to let him know what kind of death, with what kind of death he would glorify God. And that is when Jesus tells Peter yet again, follow me. And this is a, a story that is hard for Peter to accept because he recognizes the language that Jesus is using. And scholars almost uniformly say that the language Jesus is using is a, a series of euphemisms for, uh, for uh, crucifixion. And the, the idea here was plain to Peter that not only would Peter die, but that Peter would die the type of death that Jesus died. And so if you know your church history, at least from a tradition, we, uh, we, church history tells us that Peter was also crucified. But we know that this was the reason that, we, uh, that, that that inference was there to kind of place that thought in the minds of people. And it was unmistakable for somebody like Peter, because he immediately looks for an out. And this is kind of where I want us to focus on today. This is a key key verse that I want to land on and have us consider together, because Jesus tells him this, the kind of death that he's going to die, and invites him once again to follow me, to live how I live. And from this from the inferences here, to die as I died. But Peter turned around in verse 20 and saw behind them the disciple Jesus loved, the one who had leaned over to Jesus during the supper and asked, Lord, who will betray you? And Peter asked Jesus, what about him, Lord? That question really hits me because I think the idea that when we are given an assignment, when we face struggles, 
it is so incredibly easy for us to look around at the people around us and ask that question, what about them? What about them? Why is this something, why is this my cross to bear when they don't seem to have the same responsibility as I do? Why did this have to happen to me? Why did God choose me? In fact, one of the things that I often hear, and I, I'll throw this out there that I think it's, a, I think it's an error in judgment to say this, because I've heard that like God gives his toughest battles to his strongest soldiers. Um, please don't say that. That is garbage thing to say. It's not, it's not biblical. And just throwing this out there, if you go through a tough time and I were to come to you and say, well, Barbara, God gives his toughest assignments to his strongest soldiers. That's likely not going to help. So I'm just going to throw that out there because we hear that. And then the, the, the after effect tends to be, number one, um, I'm not that strong. And number two, you look around at people that you would say on the surface and maybe you know them well and you would think they're stronger than me. So why does it have to be me when they are stronger than me in every conceivable way? And as I've been in this passage and spent really any amount of time in this, I'm reminded of the dangers of comparison in our life and in our world. My journey has personally been one where I have struggled with this particular thing in a way that I might even say this is the toughest battle that I fight. I understand Peter because from the looks of it, even the way that, that the author frames this story suggests that John is the favorite. The, the inference that most biblical scholars who attribute the authorship of John. It's one of those strange things that John never refers to himself as John. It's always the disciple Jesus loved. Now, if this was written today, we would think, man, that is some grade A arrogance right there. Like if you wrote a story about our church and you referred to yourself as the member Jordan loved, but you referred to Nate and Katie and Jim and Tia and Jennifer because, you know, she's my wife, but she's just a member of this church. But let's say Nicholas wrote this story and referred to himself as the member Jordan loved, but called you all by name. We'd think, I, I don't know about that, Nicholas. <laughs> you, you might need to come back down to earth a little bit here. But I wonder if nothing else, and I, I don't know, I don't know enough about the inner workings of the Greco-Roman Jewish mind to, su to say that, man, John, you probably need to take it down a notch. But I think it does say something. It does reveal a little bit of something for somebody like Peter, who, had, who his struggles were well-documented, to see what we, he might have considered to be the golden boy, Johnny boy over there, and he is given the assignment of a lifetime, and he looks over and says, why can't John have this too? And I've been reminded 
in this season as one of the one of the outpourings of massive changes in your life, and perhaps you've been there, is you do a lot of self-reflection. Uh, you ask a lot of questions about what ifs, what could have been done differently, what could have been done better. And at times you also find yourself comparing your situation to that of others. And it is, it is interesting and it is, I think, natural to see that develop and that has such a, a toxic, it has such a toxic potential to really set yourself up for misery. And as I've been working through this in my own life, I've learned a lot about the best ways to kill your joy. Whether it's in a good season or not, whether it is in a season of joy or a season of pain, nothing kills your joy like dwelling on the situation when you do this, particularly we live in, we'll talk a little bit about this in just a moment, but especially in the world that we live in where we have been taught, I don't know if it's ever been explicitly taught to me, but we've, it's been implied that we only share the good, we only share our highlight, and we hide or minimize our struggles and our faults and our flaws. I think we probably all know at least one person that we look at on social media and think, you know, maybe you shouldn't share all of your problems on Facebook. And that's maybe true. Yeah, there's some people that, that, that might be a little more dramatic than they need to be on social media. But it is interesting how we have this cultural value of don't complain. Don't share your struggles because somebody always has it worse than you. I, I've, I've had that thought process, and, and I'm going to be, this is just one of those things that I'm, I'm not ashamed of because I believe this is important. Take care of yourself. Take care of your mental health. In my counseling, one of the things I have learned is that it is one of the most dangerous things you can do to assume that your pain or your trauma or your situation is somehow less valid than somebody else's because it doesn't appear to rise to the highest level of trauma that it could possibly be. That there is this weird thing where we do this on both ends, where we compare our lives to the best people we know, the most successful people, the most the most uh, famous or the most popular or the most well-liked, whatever it is that we feel insecure about, and we compare ourselves to our most successful, but then when we struggle, we also compare ourselves to our least successful, or those who struggle more or greater or have experienced greater amounts of trauma. And we get into this strange world where we live and die by comparing ourselves somebody else even to the point even to the point of guilting ourselves in our pain because we shouldn't struggle with the pain that we experience because other people have and when 
I think about the danger of that, I've been again and again coming back to the dangers of comparison. And in this, this world that we live in, that we are constantly feeling checked by the people around us, that we are constantly feeling the stress and the strain of either living up to somebody else or living up to the success that we wish we had or, or I- embodying the, the types of attitudes that we see in others that seem to come so effortlessly to them and yet we struggle to do that. And more and more and more, I'm convinced that this, this tendency to compare ourselves to those around us may be the most the most damaging thing that we can do that that when left unchecked that your social comparison so comparing yourself to the people in your orbit can become toxic because it tends to lead to you devaluing your experiences when compared to others. And of course, this is on either end. Because we're remarkably good at devaluing our own experiences by comparing it to other people. And this toxicity spirals and spirals and spirals. Writing uh, for the magazine Psychology Today, I have never forgotten uh, Dr. Reb- Rebecca Weber said that social media has amped this up. It's like kerosene poured on the flame of social comparison, dramatically increasing the information about people that we're exposed to and forcing our minds to assess. So now we just have this, what used to be this small inner circle that we might compare ourselves to. They used to call it keeping up with the Joneses, if you remember that. So, and the Joneses tended to be the generic name given to the, our neighbors because we, we just had to compare ourselves to them. And so it was a, well, if they built an addition onto their house, well, now we felt they need to do that. If they got a better car, now we felt they need to do that. Social media has exploded this because not only do we have access to people all through our even periphery um, of our social experiences. So it's like I met I met this person at a at a at a business after hours, and they sent me a Facebook request, and so now we're friends, kind of. I mean, they're cool and all, but like I don't really know them. But suddenly there is this opportunity to compare my life to somebody I don't know on a surface level that drives so many of us to lose the contentment that God has given to us and that God desires for us. In fact, I would say that where comparison begins, contentment so often ends. And while this is not new, so many of us miss this miss this truth when we log on to our social medias of our desires. And this is an interesting thing because I want to throw this this added element into it because you may be here and think, well, I don't use social media or I don't care about social media. I don't compare myself to other people. This is true not just in your relationship to somebody else, And I think this is important for a lot of people, so don't miss this. This is true 
about your history as well. Because I've noticed this tendency over the last few years to pine for a simpler time, or a better time, or this predetermined season maybe in our lives, or in history in general, and we think that we could be better if we just re-engaged in this way. And so your struggle may not be with comparing yourself to the person beside you or the person down the street. In your world, your contentment is the problem when you're comparing your present to some preferred place in the past. So don't assume that just because you're off social media and you don't wish you had the vehicle or the, uh, the house or the husband of the person down the road means you're exempt. Comparison can rob you of your contentment just by wishing that you lived in a different time that might seem like it would make your life easier. By the way, just throwing this out there, don't wish you could go back too far. I think toilet paper was only invented in the 19th century. And I'm just saying, <sighs> I've heard some people be like, you know, oh, I wish I could go back and, you know, be around when our founding fathers were around. It's like, that sounds great. A lot of people died from a lot of preventable diseases and you had to wipe your butt with your hand. Sounds like a terrible thing to me. I don't know if I want to do that. So just throwing that out there. But understanding that there are a lot of people uh, that, that struggle with this, this consistent pull, this consistent tension with comparing themselves or their society or their place in the historic timeline of the universe. And this can become an all-encompassing problem. This can become an all-encompassing worry. And this is not new. In fact, one of my favorite things about the Apostle Paul, um, and who he, Apostle Paul, if you aren't familiar, I mean, you're probably familiar with the name if you come to church here, uh, but the Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament. He is, outside of Jesus and maybe somebody like Peter, is perhaps the most influential individual in the history of the church. He, uh, he did so much. In fact, we're going to hear a little bit in just a couple of weeks, a little bit more about how and why this man named, named Paul became so important to the history of the church. But one of the things I love most about him, really, it's one of my favorite things whenever I notice it in Scripture, because I'm a very sarcastic person. Um, that's that's my, the type of humor I have. It's the, the type of comedy that I enjoy. And so I love when I can point out, because I've been told by some people who always mean well that my sarcasm isn't very Christ-like. And I don't know that I could say that, but I can tell you that it's very Paul-like. And Paul says, follow me for I follow Christ. So I think I'm in good company because I love, he's talking about people who pump themselves up, that, that are convinced of their own worth, that are convinced that they are better than everybody else. And his reaction is the most, the most sarcastic thing perhaps anywhere in all of the scriptures with the exception of like James. James is super, super sarcastic. This is what he said. He's talking about the way that they compare themselves to each other. He says, don't worry. Oh, don't worry. We wouldn't dare say that we are as wonderful as these other men who tell you how important they are. 
I mean, this is dripping with disdain. I love it. I love Paul. And he says, but they are only comparing themselves to each other, using themselves as the standard of measurement. How ignorant. And I tell you, there's something profound here in his sarcasm, though, that, that tells us about the dangers of the standard that we use to compare ourselves. That when we set the standard, then anybody else either will so far exceed it that will make us feel inferior or fall so short of that standard to as, so as to make ourselves feel superior. And you'll find that that is the curse of comparison, the curse of this, this whole thing that Paul is pointing out is that this using this arbitrary, our own standard for measuring people will either make you feel superior or inferior to somebody else and neither of them honor God. Comparison, whether it is social comparison to other people that you know, comparing yourself to, to public figures of some type, or even, even comparing our society to other societies in history, will either make you feel better than or less than that person, that group of people, that nation, or that time frame. And none of these things honor God because God is not asking you to be them he's asking you to be you and there is no win in comparison Andy Stanley uh, wrote this um, through a, a sermon series he did um, at North Point Community Church. He says this. He says, there is no win in comparison. There's no finish line. There's no final sense and satisfaction. There's no win. If you're better than people, that doesn't help you. And if you're not measuring up to other people, it also doesn't help you. Don't determine where you are based on where anyone else is. There is no win in comparison. Because you'll always find, even if you find a person to compare yourself with and it drives you and it drives you to succeed the best you can hope for is being better than them but you will almost inevitably find another to compare yourself to there will never be a finish line there will never be contentment when you choose the standard to try to live up to them or to try to pump yourself up by making yourself feel better. And looking at this story of Peter, looking at the interaction between Jesus, the, the Savior, the, the Messiah, the, and the rabbi that Peter had given his life to following, this was not the first time that Jesus invited the people in his life to take up their cross and follow him. You've likely heard that phrase before. That was a very common thing for him to say. Following Jesus meant some type of sacrifice of self. Some willingness to put your life on the line. And Peter knew exactly what he was being told. 
and Jesus heard him. Like, he obviously knew John was hanging out somewhere. And so when Peter points to him and he says, what about him, Lord? What about John? What about this good boy back here? What about him? Jesus says something that I think is profound. Essentially, to paraphrase, he says, it doesn't matter what John does. Peter, stay in your lane. Here's what Jesus actually said, as recorded by John in the New Living Translation. Jesus replied, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? As for you, follow me. I do find it interesting. I didn't include this in the overhead. Um, John makes an interesting comment in verse 23 um, that a rumor began to spread among the community of believers that this disciple wouldn't die. Like, it's just so funny how things get blown out of, or how we focus on the wrong thing. You know, you see this story, and of course what people think is, oh, well, John's not going to die. It's like, well, no. And I, John actually says, like, that, that isn't at all what Jesus said. I just, this is such a fascinating and hilarious story to me. But I want to come back to this. Jesus has just instructed Peter about the way that he will die. John explicitly says this. So we know that at very least, according to John, and I think based on the interaction, according to Peter, he knows this is what Jesus is saying. And Jesus, when confronted with the question of what about John? How will John die? Jesus doesn't say, don't worry, John's going to get what's coming to him. Jesus says, you know what, Peter? He might not die. What do you think about that? If I ask him, if I ask you to die and him to limp forever, it doesn't matter. What I'm asking for you is for you to follow me, for you to take up your cross. And it likely, from the seams of it, is literal. But you can't worry about what John is called to do. And this was something that I wrestle with to this day. But it is a profound principle that Jesus is teaching Peter and by proxy teaching us. We possess what seems to be the endless ability to look around and ask that same question of, that Peter asked, what about them? It is incredibly tempting to compare our process, our journey, our race against somebody else's. But Jesus again and again and again tells us that we cannot faithfully follow Jesus. We cannot faithfully run our race if we're trying to run somebody else's. We can never be who Jesus wants us to be if we try to match the results or match the lifestyles meant for somebody else. We will always encounter people that we will consider to be more successful or with a better job or with better opportunities or or are, are, are being out-promoted over us, or perhaps seem to have a, a more satisfying marriage, or have uh, a better, and I'm using major air quotes, for better families. 
And when we look at ourselves, that can create this, this feeling of inferiority, this feeling of I am not measuring up, this feeling that I can't do it, this feeling that, that nobody else struggles the way that I struggle. Because when we continually compare our lives to somebody else's, even accurately, because part of the problem with social media is that we start to compare somebody else's highlight reel to our, our, our live stream. You know, there, there is a, a distinct difference, even just, I, I haven't, I, I don't do much content creation these days, but, but not that long ago, I was doing a fair amount of content creation, both on YouTube and on TikTok, with varying levels of success. And there was a distinct difference to hearing one of my sermons and seeing one of my videos that I, that I curate. There is, it is different. I, I, I feel like it's amazing how, how articulately you can be when you cut out ums and ahs and you can really nail down and really, really make sure that everything you say is succinct and cut out any extraneous comments or pauses and make it rock solid when you have enough time to edit compared to a 40-minute sermon. But if you watch my TikTok videos or you watch my YouTube videos where I use a lot of editing, that is not my real life. That, that, is, that is accurate to me. That is, that those messages are real. But if I ever had somebody say, man, I wish I could be as articulate as you are in your TikTok videos, I could be like, man, do you want to see the raw cut? Because I tell you what, that probably took four times for me to get that sentence said right. Because I, I stumble all the time, especially if I'm on camera. The, the closely curated world that we present in social media is not real life. And so comparing ourselves in real time to somebody else's highlight reel is foolish to begin with. It's foolish for your own mental health. It's foolish because you are trying to, to elevate your real life to an unattainable standard because the standard that you're seeing doesn't exist. It's not real. If you ask that person how accurate that is to their whole lives, they'll probably tell you that it's not entirely accurate if they were willing to be that honest and transparent with you. Because comparison put, pits us into this competition against one another. That's this continual, never-ending competition when Jesus never intended for us to compete at all. This was never his goal. This was never his purpose for us. I really appreciate one of my favorite Old Testament or Hebrew um, books of the Bible is in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it is, it is an examination by, uh, often attributed to Solomon, um, or on behalf of Solomon, of wrestling with the things that, at least in his time, the world chased after, that people chased after. And early in that book, he says, I observed everything going on under the sun, and really, it is all meaningless, like chasing after the wind. If there was ever a, sit a sentence, ever a statement, that living your life 
continually comparing yourself to somebody else, this is it. You are chasing after the wind if you allow your world to rise and fall based on the successes or failures of others. If God has a better standard for us, there's a couple of things in the the passage that Cecile read earlier that I think is important. Um, The first is is that when, when we see that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses to the life of faith, this again is the New Living Translation, it's referring back to the history of the people of God who are there supporting us and rooting us on as we run our race. And one of the things that you probably notice, um, whether it is whether it is in uh, whether it's in car racing or bicycle racing or running on foot or horse racing, the easiest thing to happen is to get distracted by the people around you. When you are racing, you need to focus on yourself. That if you get so caught up in what's going on around you, you get put yourself into a dangerous position. In fact, uh, I've always thought it's fascinating that in horse racing, because of course, at very least, a, a NASCAR driver, it's a human. You can make the decisions yourself in rational ways. Horses don't get that option. Horses are just like, okay, you're running in this race now. You have no say in the matter. And so they actually put blinders on horses. Of course, their, head, their eyes are on the side of their head. Um, and part of that is, is because these horses get spooked when they see all these other horses being forced to run in this race with these little dudes on top of them. That's a pretty terrifying thing if you don't have the rationale to explain it to yourself. And these blinders help by removing the distractions of the, the races going on around them and forces the horse's eyes straight ahead. These blinders are designed to protect them and to help them finish the race marked out for them. And when the author of the book of Hebrews talks about keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith, it is inviting us to do the very same thing to place our eyes on Jesus, not on the people around us, not ignoring the people around us as if, as if sometimes it can be where we, we get so far into this relationship with Jesus that we ignore the need around us. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is putting our eyes on Jesus and allowing our focus on him to call us and to empower us to run the race he has given to us. In 1 Corinthians 9, uh, Paul writes again um, in verse uh, 24, uh, 25, and 26. I'm going to pick up um, in verse uh, 25. Oh, uh, so it says, so run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. And that is God's invitation to us that we can run to attain a prize, not because we beat everyone around us or that we're the most capable Christian there is, but because 
we are the only ones who can win the race that we alone are running. Because while we are designed for community, and I hope that you're not getting that, the thought that you have to do this isolated or alone, it is that tension of we are designed for community, we must be there for one another, just like that crowd of witnesses that, that was talked about in Hebrews chapter 12. But part of the reason that we can be there to cheer one another on is you winning doesn't mean that I'm losing. You winning doesn't mean that I'm losing. Winning the race marked out for us is not a zero-sum game. So we each run to win, but we are also the great cloud of witnesses that celebrate the victories and that mourn the defeats and that carry each other across the finish line because that is the race that has been marked out for us. We can live our entire lives comparing our race to those around us. We might see hurdles in front of us and look next to us and say, there's not a hurdle here. Why is there a hurdle for me and not for them? And we may allow that to get us bitter and angry and frustrated at ourselves and at them, which is really a bad combination. But when we choose instead of competing with one another to keep our eyes on Jesus and run our race, we remember that nobody can beat us in our race because God has called us to be uniquely us and to run our race, not somebody else's. And so as you leave here this morning, my hope for you is that you would begin to to rethink the way that you value and the way that you value yourself and the way that you see each other. And that you might do what I have had to do and, and make specific notes in a journal, in a diary, in a notebook, noting the times that you find yourself getting caught up in this comparison gambit that you will always lose and writing down how that is false. This is how I feel inferior. Here is what the facts say. Or here is what God says. Because sometimes all you need is to check your facts. Because sometimes for me, I find myself creating these situations in my head based on incomplete information. And if you understand human psychology, it's not surprising. We can go down this road of comparing ourselves to a creation in our mind. So sometimes writing down the, the frustration, the comparison we're making, and then checking our facts is, is enough to do it. But sometimes you may be entirely right. And that's when understanding who God has made you to be and understanding how he has equipped you not to run their race, but equips you to be faithful in your own. And that becomes life. And if nothing else, my hope for us is freedom. To 
run our race unhindered by selfishness or, or jealousy or envy or false guilt because we don't measure up, but instead the freedom to run a race marked by Jesus said to Peter, he says to us, come and follow me. Set our eyes on Jesus, the champion and perfecter of our faith, and run our race. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. We're going to close our service together uh, with a song called Build My Life, and I think it's so important.